Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This is marketing material for financial professionals and professional clients only. The material is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice or investment recommendations. Reliance should not be placed on any views or information in the material when taking individual investment and or strategic decisions. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. It may not be repeated. Diversification cannot ensure profits or protect against loss of principle. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Investing in emerging markets and securities with limited liquidity can expose investors to greater risk. Private assets investments are only available to qualified investors who are sophisticated enough to understand the risk associated with these investments. This material may contain forward-looking information such as forecasts or projections. Please note that any such information is not a guarantee of any future performance and there is no assurance that any forecast or projection will be realized. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individual to whom they are attributed and may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in any other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to regions, countries, sectors, stocks, or securities is for illustration purpose only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments or adopt a specific investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another installment in our ESG series. It's a new year, but we're welcoming back a previous guest, Doomberg. Andrew Lydon and Juan sat down to check in with the Green Chicken and discuss what's happened in the 18 months since we last had them on the show, their move to Substack and why they decided to leave X, formerly known as Twitter, changes in perception and narrative surrounding ESG, the resurgence of nuclear and why it has a strong momentum this time, oil's current and immediate future, AI's role in the energy transition, and finally, some comments on the geopolitical landscape. Enjoy. Dunberg. Welcome back to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Gentlemen, Happy New Year. Fantastic to finally make my return appearance on your wonderful show. Looking forward to uh, kicking off the new year the right way. We were commenting before that we are such fans of the Green Chicken brand, and we're very happy to have you back on the podcast. Our first session was very entertaining for the both of us and for our our audience as, as per what the feedback we received. And so thank you very much for coming back. What has happened over the course of the last 18 months? Oh, not much, I suppose. <laughs> All kidding aside, no, it's been... A remarkable 18 months for the world, of course. The news flow is a never-ending source of ideas for us to write about. And then for us as a business, we have really transformed and, and converted ourselves into a, a paid newsletter and have carved out a, a fine little business for ourselves doing the work of our lives, which is always rewarding. And um, it truly is when you discover what you were meant to be doing in life, I think the first rule is just keep doing it. And that's what we're doing. We're still plugging away six to eight pieces a month, as many podcast appearances as we'll be invited on, and then cutting out everything else from our lives. But the the writing of Doomberg, because it is truly the funnest thing we've ever done, the most rewarding thing we've ever done. And so we're just going to keep on going. Actually, for those that have never heard of our first episode, have never seen The Green Chicken, they don't know what the Doomberg brand is, 
Can you please walk us through a brief summary of what Doomberg is about, how how it came about, and and why is it that we are seeing a green chicken? You bet. So Doomberg is a blog. We write a blog on a platform called Substack. And Substack is, in its own way, changing the way in which people read on the internet, which I think is an ambitious goal, but a worthy one. You can think of Substack as kind of the YouTube for writers, except instead of running an advertising-based model, the platform runs a subscription-based model. The platform provides writers like us with the back office tools to create very professional looking newsletters, and then to build your own audience, to control your own audience, and ultimately, if you so choose, to become a paid newsletter, which we did back in April of 2022. And Doomberg exists to fill a significant inefficiency in the public discourse, which is in the all important energy markets, uh, ESG, renewables, nuclear, oil, gas, coal. There weren't many people commenting on those markets that come from industry. And we're a very small team of former executives from the commodity sector. And in particular, I'm a, a trained PhD, a, a scientist with two decades in industry. So we bring this sort of technical and financial analysis with the industrial lens to the energy debate. And that has really resonated with our audience, which includes you know, several thousand people who work in industry today for whom their voice was was not part of the debate. And we try our best to be as effective a voice as possible uh, in that regard. And it has really been amazing the success we've had, um, super humbling. We're the number one paid Substack in the world. I believe we're among the top five of all Substacks on the platform for, for revenue, which is life-changing as you can imagine. And something that's really difficult for us to internalize sometimes that we've become so lucky to have found what it is that we were meant to be doing. And so um, we publish articles that take anywhere between eight to 10 minutes to read uh, at a cadence of about two a week, you know, six to eight a month. 80% of our work is probably on energy. And then we toss in a bit of gold and crypto and macroeconomics now and then. Uh, but by and large, we are an energy focused blog writing about the comings and goings in that all important market. Well done for that. Congratulations. And you have fans of your content at the value team at Schroeder's when we first had our session back in 2022, you guys were very popular on Twitter, now X, and had achieved a level of followers, very unique, very successful in line with what the story has always been. What happened with X? Why did Doomberg decide to make a statement and leave X? In December of 2023, as you referenced, we wrote a piece to our subscribers called Notes on X, where we decided that we would no longer actively participate on the Twitter slash X platform for a variety of reasons, which we laid out in that piece that the first and most important reason was ownership obviously changed on that platform. And with the change in ownership came a major change in which the ways in which the platform worked. And in particular, the new owner of Twitter viewed Substack as his primary competitor. And a few months prior to our departure from Twitter, Substack rolled out what was perceived to be a competitive product to Twitter called Notes. Um, it's sort of a softer, kinder, more curated version of Twitter. There's a far fewer trolls on the platform and, and so on, although that might just be a temporary phenomenon because it's so new. But the new owner of Twitter decided that all references to Substack, all links to Substack, and frankly, we believe all big authors on the Substack platform would be throttled by X's algorithm. And we had experienced that. And as we outlined in the piece, you know, at the apex of our time on Twitter, 
we had crossed the quarter million followers mark, which is, you know, from a standing start, pretty good. And we had achieved something like 45 million impressions in the month that Twitter was sold. And then by the time we left the platform, we were down to something like 5 million impressions a month, despite a similar level of effort that we were pouring into the platform. And as a very small team, we're hesitant to grow um, because we fear that that might remove the magic or the secret sauce of what makes Doomberg successful. You know, we do everything ourselves, all the writing, editing, publishing, and promoting of 80 to 90 pieces a year is done by a very, very small team. And we have to be very cautious and cognizant of how we deploy our time. And uh, we had remarkably diminished return on time uh, expressing ourselves on the Twitter platform. And we decided to go exclusive to Substack to take all of our efforts towards that platform. And by the way, I should say in full disclosure, Substack recently had an author-led funding round and we were pretty meaningful participants in that round. So we're now we're equity owners in Substack. And I don't want anyone to think that we're just talking our book, but I think it's important to disclose any financial conflicts one may have. But you know, we decided to leave Twitter for the reasons we articulated. Frankly, uh, we haven't missed a beat. I think Twitter was important in the growth of Doomberg, but in sustaining Doomberg and taking it to the next level, we've reached sort of escape velocity in viability and in discoverability and we can grow on our own now without participating in the melee that uh, old Twitter used to be and, and certainly X still is. I'm going to be a little bit cheeky with my next question or my follow-up question. Did you guys ever wrote anything in regards of the new owner of Twitter slash X? We wrote about the new owner of Twitter slash X a couple of times. We wrote about the legal situation in Delaware because we have pretty significant M&A experience given our time in industry. And we were quite convinced that the contract he signed uh, to acquire Twitter was airtight and that he would lose that case in Delaware. And, and so we wrote about that. And we wrote about, uh, at least peripherally, we've written about Tesla's vulnerability to the Chinese electric vehicle upstarts, i.e. BYD, which is, I'm sure you know, is a, a Buffett-backed uh, Buffett uh, electric vehicle maker. And, and in the six months since we wrote that piece, uh, we note with interest that BYD has overtaken Tesla in the global full battery electric vehicle sales performance. But we have not really engaged in the broader debates around the man. You know, he is a polarizing figure. We have our own views, to be sure. But we made an editorial decision early on that we would focus our time and efforts on more productive debates. That's not a debate that I think you could make a significant impact on, especially as it has become more politically polarized, given his rightward tilt on the platform. And so that's not what people come to Doomberg to read. Uh, we live, eat, sleep, breathe, drink our ideal customers, and we want to serve them the product that they have signed up to pay for. And, and we feel that if we converted our newsletter into uh, just another participant in that debate, it would be lost in the noise. For those interested in following Doomberg, outside of Substack, where else can they go? You, I think that you guys have all also opened a, a LinkedIn account. Is that correct? Yeah, we have soft launched a, a LinkedIn account. We're still debating how much time uh, we will put into that platform. We have been encouraged by many people who also left Twitter that are in the newsletter business that that is a rich area of potential future clients that we should be exploring. But again, it really comes down to time management. Yeah, we wrote a piece. We used to write these pieces called The Work of My Life, uh, where we were very honest with our audience about 
how we were building Duberg as a business and what our metrics were and and so on. And and we we wrote a piece about the disease of more. And uh, you know we've we've achieved the level of success that we could never have imagined when we started. And the last thing we want to do is move the goalposts of life to increase the number of digits on a on an electric screen somewhere. You know, like we make more than enough doing only what we love, which is our definition of rich. And if we keep chasing more just for the sake of it, one runs the risk of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And so for the calendar year 2023, at least, we've decided to just harvest the gains, enjoy the gains. We've had many celebrations with our families and, you know, the financial future of of the members of our immediate and extended family are in much better shape because of Doomberg and full disclosure. And and that's something to be celebrated, to be cherished, to be enjoyed. And for too many people in life, when they have that life-changing win, getting caught up in the, okay, what can I do next? And how can I double this from here? Or how can I triple this from here? Um, it's okay to have ambition, and we do. Um, it's okay to want to grow, and we do. But we are trying to do so in a controlled way so that we don't, again, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, the piece that we wrote that covered all of this philosophy is, in fact, called Strange Victory which is uh, a playoff of a song by the Silver Jews and Dave Berman, who's one of our favorite musicians, Strange Victory, Strange Defeat. And uh, we, we will just take the first half of that song title and then go from, go from where we end up uh, after some period of consolidation. Really interesting. Since our last session, we believe that there has been a change in perception into, into very powerful areas of the energy transition debate. I wanted to start by asking you if our understanding or, or our pers- or, or if you share our perception as well. It seems like the narrative around ESG is changing with many people realizing that the costs were more tangible now that they've been involved in it for a while. And also there's a little bit of a tiredness around the topic. Do you agree with that statement? Yes, absolutely. I think ultimately... There's been a great lie that has been sold when it comes to renewables and ESG, and that great lie goes as follows. Um, we can easily transition away from fossil fuels towards a 100% clean energy repertoire with zero consequences to our current standard of living. And that is a lie, and that lie has been very effectively sold by the propaganda arms of the ESG movement. And Ultimately, it was inevitable that you know, the, the consequences of physics would collapse that wave function into reality, and we would all ultimately be forced to confront the most important word that is missing from the energy debate, which is trade-off. And we believe that the trade-offs required to meaningfully decarbonize, especially if you're going to be against nuclear power, the negative trade-offs far swamp any potential perceived benefits which amount to potentially avoiding some future catastrophe measured in decades. We believe that the vast majority of of voters wouldn't tolerate any meaningful trade-off to their standard of living to achieve that end. And so to get the renewable transition going, the big lie had to be told and sold and repeated as often as possible. Uh, But in in the end, physics um, must be confronted. And we believe in particular, that perhaps COP28 might have marked peak ESG and the consequences of the mistakes that we have made over the past 15 to 20 years are starting to be 
uh, made manifest. And we're seeing, as we have predicted, a, a rightward tilt amongst the, the political trends in the Western world as a consequence. You mentioned nuclear power in your answer, and that that was the exact next topic of perception that we believe that has been changing over the course of the last 18 months. It seems seems as if the role of nuclear in the future of energy transition, its benefits have become more obvious to many people in the Western Western world. And to a certain extent, we can see the the impact of this on the prices of uranium. Do you believe that this is true? Is it sustainable? What are the weaknesses in this narrative and how much Russia and the war, ha and the war has played as a catalyst? I would say that the big winner out of COP28 is in fact nuclear energy. As you correctly um, identified, it is our view that nuclear, you know, there is no path to substantial decarbonization that doesn't involve a radical increase in our investment in nuclear power. There is just no other technology that uh, is capable of achieving what the environmental movement claims to want to achieve, which is, again, uh, maintaining our current standard of living, allowing the developing world to, to develop, um, and getting off of fossil fuels in the name of reducing carbon emissions. There is no way to do that without nuclear power. And the old school Malthusian opposition to nuclear is being wiped aside. And if you if you look at what transpired in um, uh, in COP28, you know, this agreement by a couple of dozen countries to triple their nuclear energy. Uh, most importantly, uh, we think um, the fact that nuclear itself um, was, for the first time, referred to as clean in the global stock take coming out of that uh, meeting uh, is a real milestone. And um, ultimately, um, absent some catastrophic event, which is the risk that you alluded to, we do believe that this opposition to nuclear power is steadily becoming untenable. You can't be, you can't say on one hand that the world is facing a catastrophic apocalypse because of carbon emissions. And on the other hand, say that the minute risks of nuclear technology aren't worth the trade-off of helping to avoid said catastrophe. Uh, it, it's a nonsensical argument. Um, if the world is hurtling towards an apocalypse and it is truly an all-hands-on-deck situation, one of those hands, the most important of those hands, has to be nuclear power. Um, to your question about risks, of course, we're always one catastrophic nuclear accident away from uh, such an event being blown out of all proportion. You know, we, we've written about this on several occasions, but the total number of people who died directly from uh, radiation uh, in the Fukushima event was one. Uh, and that person died from cancer several years later. You contrast that with an event in China in 1975, a collapse of a large hydroelectric dam there uh, is believed to have killed at least 200, or not, not at least, perhaps as much as 250,000 people. Uh, we're not running around the world deconstructing hydroelectric dams because of, of that accident, but for some reason, the propaganda around nuclear power has been so effective that um, the Fukushima accident pushed back the industry probably 20 years, at least a decade. And so absent a such an event, which is becoming harder and harder to occur because the, the more recent designs and construction plants have taken enormous 
lends to um, uh, assuage such minimal risks. Um, that, that we do think that the, the path is clear. A nuclear renaissance is upon us. Um, what that means for the price of uranium is a whole different discussion, which I'm happy to, to embark upon. But the big winner out of COP28, in our view, was nuclear. And in fact, for a milestone, we like to look for milestones. Governor Whitner in Michigan, for example, recently passed a, a very controversial 100% clean energy by you know, 2035 law, I think it was. And in that law, nuclear and carbon capture, uh, uh, natural gas power plants with carbon capture were both defined as clean, which is giving you a sense of where the world is going. Um, last thing I'll say is we believe that out of COP28 came a grand bargain. And that grand bargain looks like this. Um, coal will be phased out in the West and replaced by natural gas. The developing world will continue to burn coal to improve its standard of living. Um, carbon capture and sequestration will be labeled as green and be used around the world where possible to um, minimize CO2 emissions. Um, industry will do its best to minimize methane emissions. Nuclear power will be accelerated and the West will continue to tinker around with solar and wind and electric vehicles, pretending like that is going to do anything meaningful um, to our energy situation in the decades ahead. That's the grand bargain. Nuclear is right in the middle of it. And I think it's bullish uh, for the industry. I guess the one other variable that has changed, or, or at least the perception that has changed over the last 18 months, is is wind. It seems like the loser of the renewable world is is that specific segment of the market. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think of the renewable options, wind makes the least amount of sense. And there's a huge cover-up of the negative environmental consequences of offshore wind in particular. But the wind industry did it to itself. You know, we had a whole doom zoom pro talk on this um, about the death of the wind industry. Um, you know, they, they, they grew so fast and, and they had this obsession with blade length. And we think it caused them to overlook the balance of system stresses that ever bigger blades spinning ever faster uh, would impart. And all of the installed offshore wind turbines in particular, in our view, um, represent um, standing future um, warranty issues and, and liabilities for these companies. We think the entire equity stack of the industry will eventually zero. And ultimately, solar can make a lot more sense in certain circumstances, but wind and offshore wind in particular, we think is, is in serious trouble. You mentioned the the grand bargain there at, at COP twenty eight between the the developed and the the emerging world. Uh, there've been quite a lot of speculation talk, or at least a kind of case tried to be made by some of the emerging nations of the need for direct financial subsidy from from the developed world in order to roll out in order to um, decarbonize or, or clean up their energy systems. Do you, do you think that's still realistic, or has the grand bargain that you mentioned in terms of it being acceptable for them or perceived acceptable for them to continue to use coal. Is that effectively uh, the developed world's way of, of, of dodging that financial commitment? You know, it's a great question. And what it must be like to be John Kerry at COP28 arriving in the face of the U.S. crossing 20 million barrels a day of crude and total petroleum production and 110 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas production and still a significant exporter of coal, what it must be like to show up at such a meeting and try to lecture the world as to what they should and could and uh, will be allowed to do, really, 
as they try to climb out of energy poverty into a life that um, is, is barely resembles anything we would we would view as acceptable in the Western world. As it pertains to the question of direct financial payments, I think these will be few and far between. It's not like the Western governments are flush with cash today. The U.S. fiscal situation in particular looks to be dissolving rather quickly. The European Union is in no position to be um, sending out hard cash to the developing world, especially as Germany in particular continues its rapid descent into deindustrialization. I do think that much of the ESG movement does amount to a financial grift. And to the extent that the emerging world can trick the developing world into giving them money for nothing, I'm sure they would be happy to take it. But I don't think that's going to be a meaningful part of um, how the ESG situation evolves in the years and decades ahead. And as you say, uh, hydrocarbons are going to be with us for a long time in, or, in you know, providing energy for the, for the world. You've written some quite interesting pieces recently dispelling a number of myths around peak oil or at least peak uh, cheap oil. Could you run us through the, the points and arguments that you've made in those couple of pieces? Sure. Two things up front. First, we've always said that the most important question you have to ask as a an analyst, an economic analyst, is, is the world currently in a situation of energy abundance or is it in a situation of energy shortage? And you can quickly move between the two, given the price elasticity of demand of commodities and so on. I just want to say that our views on peak cheap oil aren't short-term market calls that involve answering that question. These are um, decade-long questions that many people believe, perhaps already, that peak cheap oil is behind us, and we, we just happen to believe, given our chemical training and our experience in the commodity sector, that such notions um, really amount to nonsense. So if, if you ponder what the future looks like in the decades ahead, there are, there are four main arguments that we put forth in a piece with the admittedly provocative title, Peak Cheap Oil is a Myth. Uh, we put forth four major arguments that um, look something like this. The first is analysts routinely radically underestimate the technical prowess of the commodity companies. We think of technology as being monopolized by companies like Google and Facebook and Apple. And there's certainly brilliant people working at those companies, but we would argue that the scores of thousands of brilliant PhDs and engineers and technicians and, and field workers that do the dizzying array of work that make modern life possible are radically underestimated by outsiders. And this technology force is a major uh, deflationary impact on commodities that people overlook. Nobody knew what fracking was in 2009. And in a period of a decade, the U.S. has added roughly two Saudi Arabia's worth of BTUs to the global energy mix, um, all through the miracle uh, of the development of shale. And by the way, um, the U.S. is hardly a monopolist as it come, when it comes to sitting on shale assets, which leads us to our second major argument against peachy oil, which is the vast majority of constraints to development of hydrocarbons today are political. Um, there's an enormous amount of shale in Canada and Latin America and Russia and Germany and the UK and especially China. And we're seeing news um, in, to that effect that China, for example, is making significant progress in the identification and development of its own um, fracking resources, uh, to use a, 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 an industry phrase. Um, but even beyond that, there's an enormous amount of conventional oil and gas left untapped today in places like Venezuela, pick your favorite, where a change in politics would lead very quickly to a change in, in production. 
And it is our view that in the event of a major energy crisis, like we saw, for example, in Europe uh, in 2021 and 2022, politics can be very easily wiped away. And certainly on a time frame measured in decades. You know, and then even beyond that, and perhaps most importantly, and I think this was the argument we made that caught most people by surprise and made them think, which is we have a far too narrow definition of what oil is at the molecular level. And it is our view that oil should be defined as any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery. And that's because as refiners become more flexible in their never-ending journey of finding ways to make their input costs cheaper, um, they flexibilize their chemical reactors so that they can accept a wider array of, uh, a wider array of grades and, and any hydrocarbons like natural gas liquids and, and pick your favorite. Once our refinery network is able to consume a wider array of hydrocarbons, they are able to do so forever. And so, for example, most people think the U.S. produces about 13 million barrels a day of crude today. We would argue that the U.S. produces 20 million barrels of crude oil, uh, uh, sorry, of oil today, not crude. And we define oil as any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery. And in, and in our definition, and it's the same definition that, for example, BP uses in its annual statistical review, um, that would include crude, shale oils, condensate, um, natural gas liquids, and so on, because ultimately they find their way into our refining network. They get blended into products. They reduce the demand for crude, and, and they're deflationary. Uh, and then lastly, perhaps revealing our bias towards hard money, if you plot a 40-year chart of the price of oil as measured in ounces of gold, which we think is still the truest form of money, there's nothing in that chart that would indicate that we're anywhere near a chronic shortage of, of oil. And one must always remember that if you're quoting the price of oil in dollars per barrel, you're simultaneously quoting the cost of oil and the cost of the dollar. And um, the U.S. fiscal situation is not exactly robust at the moment. And so it could be that the price of oil as measured in dollars could double or triple from here. And that would indeed make oil expensive in the US, but it doesn't necessarily mean that oil is quote unquote expensive inherently. And so taken together, these four arguments, technology, politics, the ever widening definition of oil and the debasing of fiat currencies, masking the, those de deflationary efforts um, lead us to come to the conclusion that there's plenty of oil for plenty long enough. Uh, yeah, it's with the discussion of renewables, uh, particularly in Europe, and again, most recently, particularly in, in the UK, um, the arguments um, around the levelized costs of, of power and supposed uh, prowess of renewables and so on, and the, the strides they've made on, under that metric continue to be uh, continue to be highlighted to people. Uh, again, you wrote a, a very handy piece recently, just talking through some of the limitations of that uh, way of looking at things. So, so would it be possible for you to to set those out for us as well? Yeah, absolutely. If if the big lie is that we can achieve 100% renewables with no meaningful impact on our standard of living, I would say the enabling lie that people have used to obfuscate the underlying physics is this nonsense measurement um, made popular by Lazard, known as the levelized cost of electricity. And we wrote a piece again with a rather provocative title, um, debunking levelized cost of electricity. And, and the, the social preview for that piece was, I believe, exposing one of the most expensive half-truths ever told. There's a variety of reasons why the level of, levelized cost of electricity is basically meaningless. 
Um, the first and foremost of which is that it ignores intermittency. And so under the, you know, the calculation framework made popular by Lazard, the, the LCOE numbers, um, they, they basically take, uh, it averages production over a lifetime and, and therefore it totally ignores the fact that sometimes it's very windy and sometimes it's very still. And in the winter, you might not have much sun for a period of weeks. And in fact, it turns the operation of our existing electricity grids on their head. It assumes that the grid will do everything in its power to accept all the electricity wind and solar ever produce. And wind and solar are not responsible for not being able to meet demand when the sun isn't shining and the and wind isn't blowing. And so um, that is a huge issue. And in fact, as we showed in the piece, over a period of one week, the amount of wind, uh, wind energy being poured into the California grid um, dropped by 93%. As a grid operator, you have to have basically an entire backup grid on standby. And those costs are completely ignored um, in the quote-unquote levelized costs of electricity um, from wind or solar. Um, the second problem with those, these measurements it is ignores value deflation. So what does that mean? It turns out in a particular region, it's either very sunny for all of these facilities or not sunny at all. And once you have a certain critical mass of these facilities installed, the marginal return on the next installation is actually negative. It doesn't do you any good to have more wind when the existing fleet of wind facilities will provide more electricity than the grid can handle. And so there's these moments in time where there's so much renewables being poured into the grid that electricity prices are turned negative. And the, the proponents of, of these technologies take these point sources, these point measurements and say, ha ha, look, see, wind makes things cheap. But in reality, you never see them talking about what happens when um, the demand on the grid is high and wind and solar are nowhere to be found. And the rest of the uh, contributors to the grid are forced to work overtime to barely keep the lights on. And so that inconvenient fact is ignored. It also ignores uh, incremental system costs. You know, it, it turns out that people don't like to have ugly solar installations near their neighborhoods or giant wind turbines near their homes. And so they tend to be pushed out into the rural areas or, or offshore, as we discussed earlier. And that requires an enormous amount of transmission costs and you know um, right-of-way issues as you move these power lines um, uh, crisscrossing the nation. And of course, the wind blows hardest in the least populated areas of the U.S., for example. So uh, the rural West uh, is where most of the wind uh, resources that would make economic sense to exploit exist. And all of these costs are completely ignored by levelized costs of electricity. Last two points, that measurement is limited to new builds. And we have an enormous and basically fully depreciated existing grid. And so to displace a depreciated coal plant or a natural gas plant with a new build of any kind, nuclear, wind, solar, gas, you name it, um, that's going to lead to higher power prices um, for, for consumers. And then finally, like all models, it is susceptible to its assumptions, which makes it susceptible to manipulation of those assumptions. And we would argue that um, the political nature of the trillions of dollars on offer here make it very difficult for proponents of renewable energy to resist the temptation to manipulate uh, those assumptions and also to highlight the benefits while hiding uh, the inevitable uh, challenges associated with this transition. 
One thing just just to build on there, you mentioned the the location of many of these renewables assets. Again, it, in the UK in particular, I'm not sure about that else, elsewhere, but there's been a lot made of the length of the waiting lists that um, new renewable sites are facing to to get connected, and also the the, the cost and the investment needed to get power supplied to and from the, the relevant locations. Is that going to be solved simply by playing things out and innovation, or is it going to be solved, do you think, just by a lot of that purported demand disappearing for some of the reasons you, you've laid out due to the, the perhaps optimistic uh, outlook that people have had for, for wind and solar? So what, what are we seeing today in the market? We're seeing in the US, and I believe also in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong, a series of cancellations of projects because the developers of said projects um, signed up for power purchase agreements that they can no longer meet because of the inflationary effects of the energy crisis, which by the way, a major input cost into the development of renewables is of course fossil fuels. Um, solar is made on the back of cheap thermal coal and, and slave labor in China, which is how they um, you know, flooded the world and, and took over that market. Um, many of the wind supply chains are also based in China, much to the chagrin of Europe and also despite Europe's attempt to maintain local supply, especially say in Germany. And on top of that, for the reasons we just articulated, I think the true costs of actually building and operating and maintaining these facilities are becoming known to the industry. And that last part, the maintaining speaks to the risks that we articulated earlier about the, the standing liability of all these previously installed uh, wind turbines that represent for the industry. And once you, you know, investors actually have to pay all the costs. They don't just get to pretend like those costs don't exist. And and so um, the incremental dollar to chase the next wind project is drying up. And we're seeing along the Atlantic coast, project after project, either demanding a renegotiation of agreements they've already signed or an abandonment in paying the breakup fees because the NPV of paying the fee is, is better than the NPV of suffering the losses. And I, I think you're going to see a lot of that around the world. This, this, the chase of longer blade length combined with the industry's failure to harmonize its supply chain has led to all of the problems with scale and, and few of the benefits. And that's why we think the current equity stack will get wiped out and uh, the momentum in the wind sector will stall. And this will be a significant challenge to the, the ESG crowd. Um, a different story in solar because you can cite them in good locations and so on. But wind in particular, we think is, is just fatally injured. On, on the piece where you guys made the reference to LCOEs, you started the piece by highlighting an article made by the New York Times that was specifically using the terminology. The, the, out of curiosity, did you guys hear back from the New York Times? <laughs> the New York Times is <laughs> unaware of the media revolution that is Substack. And the last thing that they would want to do is to give us any semblance of credibility in their eyes by acknowledging that anything on Substack, other than perhaps some trumped up uh, issues around uh, content moderation and so on, um, you know, the, the traditional media model is broken. Substack is a disruptor, one of many disruptors we believe. And the reaction of the traditional media to publications like ours is fascinating. And that's fine by us, by the way, like we would view the New York Times acknowledging that we exist as detrimental to our business. We would like for them to ignore us for as long as possible so that we could obtain ever greater market share and mind share before they realize that we have 
encircled them and and the cauldron that they're trapped in is about to be destroyed. Uh, I do think that the creator economy, the uh, distributed nature of content creation, the gig economy for brains is just going to swap um, these traditional media, these legacy businesses that remind us of radio stations at the time that the Apple iPod was introduced to the market. They'll still exist, but they're, they're so far behind the curve that it's, it's humorous. And I would say that the trust, for example, that our subscribers have in us is deep and meaningful because we are authentically available to them. We show our homework. We admit when we're wrong. Um, you know, we, we try our best to, um, to delight them. We're responsive to their needs. None of this is true uh, of the traditional media. Uh, they view it as their job to uh, keep the population in check, to lecture them, to, uh, to, to, to you know, that they, they view them with disdain almost. And it's, it's shocking to me how they have fallen so far from their, from their fundamental missions of challenging the government, for example, as opposed to parroting whatever their preferred political politicians are saying. So the longer they ignore us or they don't realize that we're taking their lunch, the better for us. Another, um, Cheeky question, perhaps given 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 the reason for your existence, I guess. But is is there anywhere in the free uh, or the traditional news media that you think is good or least bad, or you know, with their that you'd have anything good to say about in terms of their commentary on energy issues? Yeah, I would say in energy in particular, I think the Financial Times does a reasonable job of balancing its pro-renewable propaganda with reasonably good reporting on the matter. I think there's some reporters at Bloomberg who do well. Javier Blas in particular is quite good. And of course, we're big fans of Matt Levine, who is just really one of the best business writers in the world and somebody we look up to and, and envy really, you know, in the, in the most positive way possible. He's very prolific and very funny and, and somebody we look up to for real. So there's pockets of sanity in, in the traditional media world, but the piece of innovation, the speed with which you can start a business. Like we started our business in May of 2021 from scratch. And we have over 200,000 email subscribers and um, a really amazing set of paying subscribers. And, you know, we were able to, we spent nothing on customer acquisition and, until just now. We're even just now just beginning to ponder whether we should go down the road of actually trying to proactively acquire customers as opposed to just letting word of mouth and quality of product do our advertising for us. This speaks to a deep hunger for authentic opinion and reasonable discourse. You know, we've tried very hard. One of our brand ambitions is um, we're always polite. We're always responsive to people who are critical of our pieces. We take great pride in responding to every comment to our pieces, which are closed to paying subscribers, which is one of the smartest things we've ever done because it, the signal to noise is really amazing. And it has become sort of a private Twitter where experts in energy all over the world um, criticize or amplify our work and and provide extra links for our other subscribers to go and chase down and, and read more about. Um, but we, we take pride in answering every single email or comment from a subscriber, which just doesn't happen with the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Financial Times. They can't, of course, because of scale. But we're pretty big, and we do, because we, we care about our subscribers, and our objective is to delight them. And so um, it's a compelling product. And and we believe that Substack, as part of a wave of offerings for the way in which people will inform themselves over time, you know, that the general public can be trusted to know the truth 
And too often, the traditional media players are carrying the water of, of the ruling political class and, and to the point where they've lost the trust. And if we ever lose the trust of our subscribers, for example, our, our recent pieces on peachy oil and it being a myth came as a surprise to some of our subscribers because we came of age during an energy crisis. But we've always said the first question you have to answer is, are we in a period of abundance or shortage? And we will be willing to call that change if we see it. Um, we're not just going to be the name notwithstanding, you know, sellers of doom. Uh, Doomberg is a cheeky name. We're actually very optimistic people. Um, but if the market tells us that things have changed, we want to be quick to that conclusion and be as honest with our subscribers as possible. And, and we're willing to defend it. And some of our subscribers were upset with our pieces and we patiently and politely responded to all of their critiques. We converted some of them. We lost some of them. Uh, we're willing to lose some people to you know, stand by our principles. Our principles are we will try our best to understand the way the world is currently working and the way it will work in the future. We will articulate that understanding with full transparency and honesty and showing our homework. We include at least a dozen links per piece uh, so that our readers can go follow up on everything that we say. And um, when we're wrong, we will admit it and correct it and learn from it. Um, we strive to be as right as possible, but we don't strive to never be wrong because that would be far too boring. Um, and, and we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we weren't taking a few risks and making a few predictions here and there. Uh, we have a very good hit rate, not a perfect one, but we always, always we, we don't like to be wrong, but we view being wrong as a unique opportunity to learn and to improve. And one of the overarching objectives of the very small Doomberg team is we shall always have a mindset of continuous improvement. Um, and so while we regret errors, we are zealous in our desire to understand how we made them so that we don't repeat them. Just a small example. We focus like you wouldn't believe on making sure we have no typos in our pieces, but we always have, not always, we occasionally have typos in our pieces. How did that typo skip uh, through our, our process of writing and editing and reviewing? We, we, you'd be surprised how much time and effort we put on the genesis and trajectory of every single typo. And believe me, the moment we press send, we'll know within 20 minutes whether we have a typo in a piece. And, you know, it's become a running joke in our audience, like in our office, like um, the piece publishes at 5 a.m. Eastern and I'm waking myself up at 520 and checking the comments to see if we have a typo. And every time we have a typo, we have basically an after action study. How did that typo arise? How did we miss it in editing? How do we miss it in final review? And what can we change about our operating procedure to ensure that we never have such a typo again? And that iteration, that continuous improvement is really testimony to our desire to delight our customers. And our customers know that and they feel that and it comes through in the brand. You know, a brand is nothing more than a gut feeling. And amongst the brand ambitions for Doomberg is that our subscribers know that they're getting our authentic best. They're getting the truth as we believe it today. Um, they're getting the best, most creative, sometimes humorous writing that we can put towards those views. And we will be responsive to any mistakes that we make and we'll be stand up about it and work our, work our hardest to make sure they don't happen again. And typos in their own small but very important way is an example of how maniacal we are uh, towards that brand ambition. The first of a couple of questions really on issues we, we've found interesting, one of which is 
very much in the spotlight, one of which could not be further from the spotlight, or certainly from my awareness. The first was on the a piece you've written on the the energy intensity of, of AI, given the the amount of development and excitement and so on that there is in, in, in that area and the potential uh, or the question of the potential of whether um, energy, there can be sufficient energy or electricity ge generated to, to meet the computational demands of, um, of those developments. Yeah, so artificial intelligence is really just the next iteration in the Kurzweilian exponential growth of computing power and what that means for humanity. And so we opened that piece um, talking about um, Ray Kurzweil's um, excellent book, The Singularity is Near, which I believe was published in 2005 already, which kind of dates me. I remember reading it for the first time and reading the first chapter and having to put it down and go on a long walk and ponder what it means to be human. There's a view uh, that we think is probably true, that states that effectively we will create as much energy as we need to continue to power the computing revolution and the exponential growth that we see in that space. And one of the main conclusions of such a view is that the explosion in artificial intelligence and the need to power it could ultimately be the thing that normalizes nuclear power again in our energy debate, because it, it is just a uniquely qualified fuel source to power the data centers and, and server farms that are needed as AI continues to explode. You know, a nice SMR, uh, you know, put in the right place gives you the baseload power reliability and, and, and so on that one needs. And if you just sort of look at the, 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 the growth in supercomputing power, for example, in the chart that we had in the piece, we're right on line where Kurzweil predicted we would be 20 years ago. And by hook or by crook, we just seem to be willing as a society to reorganize ourselves to keep ourselves on that path. Not sure what that means from a philosophical perspective, but as a, as a conjecture, as an, as an investor who is pondering such things, uh, the conjecture that we will do what we need to do to stay on that path has been a pretty productive one and, and has guided you well in the past 20 years since Kurzweil's book was first published. And and the other thing that really jumps out at you in the piece is just the dominance of the U.S. in this regard. Um, for all the talk of the challenges with the U.S., and, and God knows there's plenty of them, when it comes to primary energy all the way forward integrated to you know data centers, AI, and chip design, we really are the the, the world's leading economy. And um, despite our best efforts to destroy it, uh, there's an enormous amount of, uh, of foundational attributes that would be that would make the rebirth uh, of the US post the fourth turning um, uh, an amazing place to be. Uh, and so um, the ultimate sort of one liner from that piece was, um, you know, we believe we will stay on that computing line. And in order to do so, it's difficult to imagine how Nuclear power doesn't play a significant role in SMR technology in particular. And so therefore, ergo, given the postulate or the conjecture that I was just describing, the need to do whatever it takes to stay on that computing trajectory will be the thing that normalizes uh, nuclear power in general and SMR technology in particular uh, for future generations of uh, energy, hungry, uh, energy hungry consumers to use. We are living in what is perceived to be a world of high uncertainty 
driven by a lot of geopolitical events. I'm not sure if I'm not sure if there is anything new about it, given that the world is always in a state of change and there are, there's always a crisis happening somewhere. But it feels like you're dealing with a war in Europe for the first time in almost 100 years with Russia and Ukraine. You have your political tensions between China and Taiwan, China and the US. You have what is happening in the Middle East. You have this new situation with, with the involvement of Iran and and uh, the shipping industry. We were wondering if you could share some thoughts about the current state of affairs from a geopolitical perspective. Absolutely. And, and I would say, unlike, say, our expertise in the energy sector, our chops as a geopolitical analyst are probably a little less developed um, based on our lack of experience in the area. So I just always like to disclose in advance um, where we are moving from informed speculation to perhaps uh, entertaining speculation. But um, but, I, but many, many times uh, conflicts are driven by humans looking for... Yes, energy. Yeah. yeah. And I would say the energy markets are telling us today that the conflict in the Middle East, for example, will not spread. It may spread, and the energy markets might be wrong, but there's no way oil would be trading here if the markets truly believed that they would, we're on the cusp of a kinetic, i.e. hot conflict between the U.S. and Iran, for example, um, or whether the situation with the Houthis wouldn't be resolved here in, in short order. Now, the markets have been wrong before, but as an energy analyst looking at the price of oil today, you know, where would the price of oil be if we had no conflict in the Middle East? or if OPEC hadn't proactively cut 2 million barrels a day of its own supply from the market. And so the geopolitical world as we see it today, let's start in Europe. We think the Western world, uh, the media in the Western world is not being honest with its citizens about the deteriorating situation in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Russia. We think that um, the war in Russia is not going well for the West. Um, recent three major waves of missile strikes on Ukraine, for example, that seem to have overwhelmed their air defense systems are wildly underreported in the West and what the consequences of that development mean for the future of the war. They also are underreporting in the West the relative lack of support for NATO and the G7 countries in the conflict in Ukraine and by extension, the relative level of high support for um, Russia's view on the matter, whether or not you believe Russia's view on the matter um, is correct, you have to be aware of what the rest of the world is thinking. I do think that um, the political situation in Kiev is something to keep a close eye on and is a bit more precarious than it is being portrayed in the West. And then finally, as we predicted uh, in a piece describing the ouster of um, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the U.S. Congress, the support for unlimited funding for Ukraine from the West, um, the US and Europe, for example, um, is significantly diminishing uh, in the face of Trump's reemergence as a political candidate uh, in, in the Russian, in the, in the Republican uh, primary. I guess that the opponents of Trump would say that was a Freudian slip. But um, those are the facts as we see them, you know, sort of um, apolitically observing them. Uh, and so, a resolution in Ukraine that isn't to the liking of the West is a possibility that we think is being underestimated by the market. Um, we think the market might be underestimating the possibility of a spreading war in the Middle East. And then Russia, uh, sorry, China, US, Taiwan is 
you know, anybody in the West who thinks they can understand what's going on inside China's borders is, is at least in some degree fooling themselves. It's very difficult to get meaningful information out of that regime that is actionable. And so um, we are just observers. Um, I think the thing to watch is China's unrelenting mission to domesticate semiconductor chip technology. They're far more serious about it and seem to be further along the path than the U.S. is, for example. And the discussion around semiconductors and the magic that is held within the brains of the technicians that make it work is perhaps a, a subject for another podcast appearance. But that's not to be underestimated. And China is not underestimating. It, and, and we think they might be far closer to being able to replicate what Taiwan does today for their own needs. And once that happens, then the risk of them moving on Taiwan at least the economic risk of it is significantly diminished in the eyes of, uh, of, of Xi. And so those are the things we're watching, but we don't really have much in the way of original analysis to add. We just are looking at the milestones as we understand them and, and trying to understand the second and third order impacts of those developments on the energy markets. For example, if the leverage that Putin has and is gaining in the conflict in Ukraine is internalized amongst the European powers, perhaps a negotiated peace might come quicker than most people think. And what happens to the natural gas market if the the the, the pipelines that still exist today and are not destroyed um, suddenly get turned back on at full capacity? What does that mean for the energy market and for the emerging glut of natural gas that we see coming on the horizon? Those are the types of questions that make us interested in trying to understand the geopolitical turns of those events. But as far as our ability to no, to truly, you know, comment on on the first order meaning of events that that's for others with more expertise in the area to do. That's really interesting and very useful. Dumbra, we're coming to an end of our session, and in the past we asked you for a book recommendation, and you gave us at least two last time, and we cannot pass on the opportunity of asking you again what would you recommend us and our listeners to read? Yeah, I'll give you a, a curveball and I'll recommend a book about cancer. Cancer is something that we've been thinking about a fair bit. And I just reached over to grab the book so I can give you the title. There's a fascinating book that was published last year um, by an author, um, I believe it's Nathan Vardy, V-A-R-D-I. Yeah, Nathan Vardy. And the book is called For Blood and Money. And it's a fascinating, a gripping tale of the discovery, development, clinical trial, and ultimate commercialization of two very powerful blood cancer drugs. And the complexities of the questions of science, ethics, and economics that go into such developments is fascinating, challenging, largely underreported, and something we're pondering to dive into under the Doomberg masthead at some point. Uh, we've only ever really written one article on cancer, but it's a topic that is very interesting to many people and, and including potentially our subscribers. One that for a variety of reasons, we have some unique expertise on staff to address, um, but we've not yet made the plunge. But if you're looking for a page turner, easy to read book about monumental technical advances in the war against cancer, but the economic and ethical challenges that said advances uh, immediately present, uh, we, we can wholeheartedly recommend Nathan Vardy's book, um, For Blood and Money. That's fantastic. And as you say, said before, 
definitely a curveball. Bloomberg, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. It's always a pleasure. Gentlemen, uh, the pleasure was all mine. And let's not uh, make it so long in between um, this and our next appearance. We agree. Take care.